Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks at various paranormal occurrences that happen here in the United States. I'm your host, Michelle, and while I am a skeptic by nature, I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and really open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I'll present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode takes us out to Ralston, Wyoming, and this is the story of the Heart Mountain Relocation Center. So no matter what country you hail from, you at some point learn the history of the Second World War. Though in the United States, this country was embarrassed by some of the actions that they took during the time of the war. That is why the Heart Mountain Relocation Center and nine other buildings are ignored in United States history lessons altogether. It is pretty much a history that the states tries to kind of sweep under the rug and forget, but we're going to kind of put it out there now. So gear up for a pretty crazy story of the history of racism in the United States during the war. And of course, I will also share the haunted reports that happen at this facility. So this story kind of starts in December of 1941, when of course the famous Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor happened. And this is of course what led the United States into entering into World War II. A couple months later, on February 19th of 1942, not long after the war had began, President Theodore Roosevelt himself issued an executive order. And what this order did is it gave power to the Secretary of War to be able to designate certain areas as military zones. And these zones would be what the government would call exclusion zones. And what the problem was is when the war began, the government was really worried about spies, espionage, sabotage, all that kind of stuff. And their main concern were Japanese spies, of course, since Japan was the country responsible for the bombing on Pearl Harbor. So what this executive order did is it made most of the western United States, including California, Washington, Oregon, Arizona, and Alaska, all these exclusion zones. And you may be wondering why they called them exclusion zones. Well, it's because people of certain ethnicities and races would be excluded from being allowed to be in these areas. And why they targeted the West Coast is because that is the closest coast to Japan. Now, those who were to be excluded from these zones on the West Coast were Japanese Americans, Italian Americans, and German Americans. After the executive order was issued, people of mainly Japanese descent were forced to leave these exclusion zones. And while it was said that Italian and German people were also being targeted, this was something that was just being targeted really for Japanese people. And what they would get is they would get a notice that they had to report to the civil control station to receive further instructions. And what they would give them is advice on what they had to do for their evacuation. They would help them sell and get rid of their businesses, their property, and all their goods because they were only going to transport the people and a limited amount of clothing and equipment to their new residence. 
They were also going to provide temporary residence for them elsewhere and let them stay in their family group. But they really didn't give them any other information other than stating, okay, you have to get rid of all your stuff and go to some random place, but we're not going to tell you for how long or why. Now, most of these people were legal U.S. citizens. Most of them had been born here, and they really didn't question it because, I mean, it's your government asked you to do something during the war. You're not sure why, so they just went. They were not permitted, of course, to go anywhere they wanted when they left. They were transitioned into temporary public shelters, and you might be thinking of shelters like we know today for hurricane victims and things like that, but this was not the case. These were really crude areas, usually at county fairgrounds, racetracks, and other large areas like that. And many times these families were staying in areas that were just converted animal stalls. Well over 100,000 Japanese American people were forced out of their homes and into these temporary shelters. And of course, as I mentioned, while the order included German and Italian Americans, very few people of these descents were actually relocated. It was mainly those, again, of Japanese descent. Almost 70% of these Japanese Americans were citizens born in the United States, and a majority of the remaining 30% had lived here for 20 years or longer. And you may wonder why this was happening. Why would Roosevelt make such a wide sweeping issue with the Japanese Americans? While Asian Americans had been dealing with racial biases for quite a long time from the government. So once the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, it kind of gave the government the green light to be racially biased without getting any kickback from the people who lived in the States. In a letter written to Roosevelt in 1943 by the Attorney General Francis Biddle, stated, quote, You signed the original executive order permitting exclusion so the Army could handle the Japs. It was never intended to apply to Italians and Germans, end quote. So you can see in just letters written between government officials how much of a racial bias there really was towards the Japanese people at that time. And to exclude these people from the areas, the order required the government to provide basic necessities, such as food, water, shelter, and medical care. And in these makeshift shelters, the people did receive these very, very basic necessities and were kept in these makeshift shelters until a more permanent structure could be built. Eventually, the government commissioned 10 separate relocation centers to inter these people more permanently. Many people refer to these centers as concentration camps and things like that. Whatever you want to call them, they weren't nice places that people were being relocated to. I mean, they weren't being killed, but, you know, they were kind of treated like cattle almost. There were two camps that were built in Arkansas, two in Arizona, two in California, one in Idaho, one in Utah, one in Colorado, and the one I am talking about in this episode in Wyoming. Now, prior to World War II, this Wyoming site had been used to run an irrigation project to supply water to the nearby areas. And up until 1941, the construction continued to improve irrigation, including the building of a canal. But after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, things changed and construction ceased in the area as the United States entered the war. 
Now, because of its relatively isolated position and its close access to water, the site of the irrigation project was perfect for this government facility. On June 1st of 1942, the irrigation project supplied 46,000 acres in several buildings to become one of the relocation centers. And the center was called the Hart Mountain Relocation Center after the nearby Hart Mountain. Over 2,000 workers set about getting everything ready for the people who were going to be kept here. They surrounded 740 acres with barbed wire and nine guard towers. And once the people moved in, there were armed guards stationed in these towers at all times, 24-7. I mean, it was like these people were in prison. Inside the fences, 650 military-style barracks were built. These buildings were used for administrative purposes, medical facilities, schools, utilities, and over 450 dorm-style homes for the people who would be interred here. Each camp held up to about 18,000 people and really functioned like small towns. Adults could even have jobs where they made up to a whopping $12 to $19 a month. And just to give you a little perspective, a white nurse working at one of these internment camps would make about $150 a month, but a Japanese-American doctor would make $19 a month. So a nurse is making 150 and a doctor is making 19. Also, usually all the medical services and education provided were delivered by those who were being held there against their will. And again, this is a prison setting. People are given their meals at certain times. Their showers are at certain times. You know, you can't come and go as you please. They're really in cities disguised prisons. Now, all the buildings did have electricity, but they weren't well built due to time constraints, as the government wanted the entire project completed in two months. Two months. So you're supposed to be able to house up to 18,000 people in buildings made in two months. So they weren't really well built. It was said that one apartment home could be built in about an hour. And the buildings weren't built to keep out the bitter cold Wyoming winters that were negative 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. I mean, the walls were wood-framed walls covered in tar paper, so when blizzards and snow would come, these people were going to be in trouble. The surrounding acreage was going to be used to grow food so that the center didn't have to rely on government help. They could be pretty much self-sufficient, as, again, the racial biases, the government really didn't want to sink a lot of money into taking care of these people. On August 12th of 1942, the first prisoners arrived at the relocation center, and in total there was 10,541 people who arrived on that day. The prisoners were put into barracks based on their family size, and each barrack unit had one light, one wood stove, one cot, and two blankets for each family member. That was it. The only other things they would have is the belongings that they were able to fit on their back. Bathroom and laundry facilities were in big communal buildings, and all meals were served in large food halls. You would be assigned your meal hall and your bathroom based on where your barracks was located. And these new movements, they had to quickly get to work. They had to stuff newspaper and rags to cover the holes and the big gaps that were letting the cold air in. And they even had to order tools out of catalogs to make repairs on the shoddy workmanship. 
And when they got there the first month or two, they just had to freeze as, I mean, they didn't have Amazon prime guys. So things weren't getting there in two days. You know, you might have to wait a month to get something in the mail. So when they first came here, it was cold, it was winter and they were just freezing, huddling around their stove. But that's all the bad stuff. Now, while this of course was no place you wanted to live by any means, it wasn't all bad. There were social clubs. There was a high school where they had sports games where the people could watch the games. And they eventually even went off against some of the other local high school teams. There was also movies they could watch. And some of the people there would make fun for the kids. They would make makeshift ice rinks and things like that. Now, to make matters even worse for these poor people, while in these relocation camps, the military draft went into effect. And this is, of course, where young men were drafted into the military, whether they wanted to fight or not. These Japanese-American men were being drafted to fight in the war effort, and I can't imagine how angry and frustrated someone would be. They were stuck in these camps held there against their own will by their own government just because of their ethnicity and the way they look. Then the government tries to force them to fight in a war while they're still locked up. I mean, it just boggles my mind that they thought they could just do this. Many of these Japanese American interred in the camp were refusing to answer their call to be drafted until they were released from incarceration. These citizens were eventually actually arrested and served felony charges in prison for draft dodging. And while many did resist and went to jail, the majority of them just went. Over 650 men from the Heart Mountain Relocation Center went to serve either by draft or by volunteering for the war. In December of 1944, Roosevelt finally lifted his executive order allowing those who had been imprisoned in these relocation camps to finally be able to return to their homes. And by January of 1945, they began leaving to return west. Though about 7,000 of the 10,000 plus people actually remained here for quite a long time until November of that year as the problem was they now had nowhere to go. The legislation targeting those of Japanese descent prevented them from owning their homes and farms they'd had prior to being incarcerated. They had to sell them. They had nowhere to go. The only thing the government was willing to do is pay a one-way train ticket to the destination that they were picked up from. But again, what were they going to have when they got there? They had no home, no job, no money, no nothing. They weren't even allowed to homestead in Wyoming where they were or vote to change the laws because of their ethnicity. Some of them ended up going east and others just had to rebuild as they could. So it was a horrible situation for these poor people during these four years. During the 1,187 days the camp was open, more than 14,000 prisoners passed through the gates. After the war and the Japanese Americans had vacated the relocation center, the land and the buildings were actually sold off to farmers and servicemen, and the irrigation project also restarted. Nowadays, the only remaining buildings from the relocation center are parts of the hospital complex, the high school storage shed, there is a root cellar, a part of a remodeled living barracks, 
and the Honor Roll World War II Memorial, which honors those of the incarcerated who served in the war and died or were injured during the war. As of 1996, the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation was established. And what they did is they formed so that they could preserve and memorialize what happened while educating people on the history with all of this. In 2007, the site was added to the National Historic Landmark Registrar, and on August 20th of 2011, the Heart Mountain Interpretive Center was finally opened. And here, you can actually learn the history through permanent and rotating exhibits that come through, and there's also a walking tour where you can see all of the remaining structures. You can visit this place seven days a week in the spring and summer and Wednesdays through Saturdays during the fall and the winter. Now, before I get into the haunted reports, I wanted to give you all a great podcast recommendation because I know I'm always looking for new recommendations. This podcast is part of the Boo Pod Network, which is a network I joined along with 14 other great podcasts and podcasters who have gotten together to form this network. Today, I want to recommend the Skylark Bell podcast. This podcast is run by Melissa, and she is great at running it. What she does is it's a fiction-based story that every week she releases a different chapter. It's a really interesting story. Her voice is really good at keeping you intrigued, so definitely give it a listen. Here is her trailer, so check it out. Welcome to the mysterious world of the Skylark Bell. Our story begins on the outskirts of a small town called Pocket, where Margaret Phaeton, better known as Magpie, must connect a series of unexplained events, psychic visions, and century-old folktales before the mysterious silence hanging over the abandoned farm at Meadow Lane spreads to the entire town. The Skylark Bell is a fiction podcast in serial format with new chapters every Friday and bonus episodes that recount real-life paranormal experiences. Find The Skylark Bell on all major platforms and at theskylarkbell.com. I'm Melissa Oliveri. Thank you for listening. All right, and now let's get into the reason we're all here and get into the hauntings that are said to be going on at the Heart Mountain Relocation Center. One of the most frequent reports is luckily a friendly spirit at the facility. Staff and visitors both have had experiences with the spirit, and it's actually one of the few spirits I've heard about that likes to make its appearance during the daytime and not at night. What this spirit likes to do is guide visitors throughout the building. So apparently when visitors enter, this ghostly guide appears and offers visitors a tour. The visitors follow their tour guide around only to see their guide disappear shortly into the tour. Sometimes this guide is also known to follow visitors around throughout the main building without actually saying anything, which might be a little bit creepy. But this might be the reason the spirit is only seen during the day as, you know, tours are only going on during the day. There are quite a few people who enter the facilities who are overcome by the feelings of stress and tension. So maybe not all the spirits are friendly, but 
Then again, maybe it's the feeling people get after realizing what happened to the citizens of Japanese descent in this facility. I'm sure it kind of makes you stop and think and makes you probably even feel a little weirded out. People also report the feeling of being followed and watched. And I wonder if this is this friendly spirit still keeping an eye on everyone possibly. Those who have entered the buildings and the grounds claim to feel cold spots. They'll hear strange noises that they can't explain. They will hear footsteps even when no one is around and even see phantom footprints being made on the ground. In addition to the strange noises, people have also heard coughing and voices whispering when no one is around. And these things happen during the day and at night, though night is a little creepier because this is the time when these shadow people come out. And people will report seeing these shadow people out of the corner of their eye, but when they turn and look, there's no one there. But luckily, they don't feel any malicious tendencies from these shadow people. In the barracks, sometimes phantom music can also be heard playing, though the source can never be found, and the shadow people are also very, very prevalent in the barracks. In addition to these reports from visitors, the area gives off quite high EHP ratings. It's actually rated at 85.7 out of 100, making it Wyoming's second most haunted spot according to this rating. It is reported that the spirits here are so active because not only are they tied to the place they were interred at, but they also have ties to their belongings. As remember, when they were incarcerated, they had to leave Heart Mountain and they could only take, again, what they could carry on their backs. So a lot of times they had to leave behind different things like clothing, books, and other personal items. And people think that their spirits may now be attached to these said objects that are still located on premises. And now that we know the history and the haunted reports, let's look at how the facts and the haunted reports line up. During the years the thousands of Japanese descendants were incarcerated at Heart Mountain, there were 556 babies born. So there is a little bit of light in this dark story. Though it's sad to think that most of these babies were born from native-born parents and born as United States citizens, though they were kept in a prison constructed by their own government because of how they looked. Though new life came to the relocation center, life also left. During the time the center was open, 148 people died at the Heart Mountain Relocation Center. And many families had their deceased loved ones cremated, though some chose to actually have a burial at Heart Mountain. After permission was given to allow these imprisoned people to leave, many families chose to have the bodies exhumed of their loved ones so that they could be sent home to be buried. Though after everyone had left, there was actually six unclaimed bodies that were left at Heart Mountain, and these bodies ended up being reburied at a nearby cemetery called the Powell cemetery. There were also over 800 men and women who served in the armed forces from Heart Mountain Relocation Center, and a number of those who served were wounded and a few were even killed. All of these circumstances together make it highly likely that a haunting could be occurring here. First off, 
I mean, those who died had their family imprisoned at these facilities. Their spirits might have wanted to stay with the family and had nowhere else to call home at this point. Remember, their homes were gone, sold off, or given away. They had nothing to go back to. So when they died, maybe they just wanted to be with their family. And then once their families could leave, maybe their spirit was already so attached to this place that they couldn't leave. This could also account for those who died in the war, as again, their family was probably still there, and this is the last place they had lived. Body exhumation may also have affected the spiritual world, keeping the spirits of the dead at Heart Mountain when their bodies were kind of messed with. But what makes me pause are just a few issues of evidence. First off, Many people really cite the EHP rating of this facility. They state it is so high that the place has to be haunted. So I was like, well, what, what the heck is an EHP rating? I had to look everywhere through various articles. It was actually really hard to find out even what it was. So it sounds like it's a meter reading, right? Well, it's not. It is not scientific in any way, shape, or form. The EHP rating is basically a number scale from 0 to 100. The more haunted reports a place gets, the higher the number. For example, if only two people reported seeing a ghost at the specific restaurant and there was one occurrence of a door slamming, it might get a rating of like 10. Though if there are 100 reports of sightings of the lady in white on a bridge and a ton of different kind of reports such as they saw orbs and heard voices, it might get closer to like 80, like Heart Mountain. So it doesn't really have a lot of basis in factual evidence here. This is just based again on hearsay and how many people say they saw something. So I'm not going to really put too much stock in the EHP rating. And I also couldn't actually find any first-person experiences. Just the same reports repeated over and over again on multiple sites and articles. It was pretty much almost a copy and paste for every report from every site. And this facility has been open to the public for over 10 years, since 2011. You'd think with such a high level of haunting, we'd hear a lot more first-hand accounts. This is also an issue because there's no photographic, video, or audio evidence to look into for this facility. And lastly, the main ghostly report that kind of puts me off is no one reports the sex or what the tour guide looks like. I mean, did the tour guide speak? How long were they on the tour? I mean, if this guide is a full-fledged, solid apparition that disappears, you would think there would be a lot more talk and pictures of this person. I mean, people who are on a tour of a facility, I mean, we're automatically taking pictures of everything and there's nothing. So I'm a little off put by that. But all in all, I can definitely see why spirits would remain at the Heart Mountain Relocation Center grounds. Though I haven't seen or heard anything to prove that they do reside here. I don't have anything to tell me that they don't. So again, I'm on the fence and keeping my skeptical hopefulness alive. But regardless, I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you think the Heart Mountain Relocation Center is haunted or not. I'd love to hear any personal experiences, proof, or other facts you may have. And I'd also love to hear your feedback. 
Make sure you tune in every Wednesday to this podcast, wherever you tune in. And don't forget to leave a review and follow this podcast so you know as soon as the new episode is ready. You can also follow the podcast social media for more information on each episode, including pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, or you can always shoot an email over to paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.